I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. The Supreme Court has had a busy summer loosening gun restrictions in states, overturning Roe versus Wade, and severely threatening our Miranda rights. I'm Leah Littman, and each week on Strict Scrutiny, I'm joined by my co-hosts and fellow law professors, Melissa Murray and Kate Shaw, to break down the latest headlines and the biggest legal questions facing our country. It's more important than ever to understand the repercussions of these Supreme Court decisions and what we can do to fight back in the upcoming midterm elections. Listen to new episodes of Strict Scrutiny every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's pod, the Republican Party is still more Marjorie Taylor Greene than Glenn Youngkin. Washington Post columnist Perry Bacon joins us to talk Democratic midterm strategy in the wake of last week's elections. And later, Dan and I will answer a few of your questions. But first, check out my new weekly interview series, Offline with John Favreau. This week, I talked to Snapchat's Peter Hamby about how Twitter ruined political journalism and what a healthy, sustainable model of journalism might look like. There's hope, Dan. There really is. Um, that, that was your takeaway from that Sunday, conversation? <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm trying. Okay. On Sunday, uh, tune in. I talked to soccer star Megan Rapino about how social media affects athletes' mental health and whether she should run for office. Uh, check out that one right here on your PSA feed. Also, check out this week's Pod Save the World, where Ben calls in from the Climate Summit in Glasgow, where he's traveling with President Obama. He also speaks to climate activist Hannah Martin and Louisa Neubauer, as well as former Secretary of State John Kerry, about the intense climate negotiations he's involved in at the summit. Excellent episode. Ben, we got a live correspondent from Glasgow. Check it out. It's great. And finally, Love It or Leave It is coming to the New York Comedy Festival at the Beacon Theater in New York City this Friday, November 12th. You can still snag the last few tickets at cricket.com slash events. Go say hi to Love It. It'll be a fantastic show. All right, let's get to the news. Before we continue our conversation about Democratic strategy in the wake of last week's off-year elections, we thought we'd talk about some of the headlines the Republican Party has been making lately. So not only did House GOP leadership order its members to vote against a bipartisan infrastructure bill that will deliver jobs, roads, and clean water to millions of their own constituents, now they're looking to punish the 13 Republicans who voted for the bill by kicking them off their committees. Marjorie Taylor Greene is tweeting out their phone numbers. Fred Upton, a moderate from Michigan who supported the bill, uh, has been getting death threats. Meanwhile, Republican leaders haven't said a word about Congressman Paul Gosar tweeting an image of someone killing AOC. And a bunch of Republican members of Congress are now selling and wearing Let's Go Brandon merch, a phrase that for a very stupid reason means fuck Joe Biden. Dan, how are we losing to these people? <laughs> That's the famous, I'm paraphrasing Harry Reid there. Remember when Harry Reid was running against Sharon Engel 
way, way back. And he was like, at one point, he just said, how am I losing to this person? Because she was so crazy. Well, maybe like Harry Reid, we're not losing to them. There you go. That's the upside. I mean, that's the that's the silver lining. That's what I, I mean. We do have the House, the Senate, the White House. We have won the popular vote in all but one election since 1988. So we're not really losing to them all the time. But we did just lose to them in Virginia, a state where we can blame no one but ourselves for that loss. <laughs> How is it good politics to punish 13 House Republicans for supporting a bill that Mitch McConnell and 18 other Senate Republicans voted for? We're talking a lot about how all these like House Republicans voted for it. I'm not seeing a lot of commentary about the fact that like this is a fucking Mitch McConnell backed bill. <laughs> like, first of all, you don't strip away committee assignments from people who vote for a bill that you don't agree with. That just like doesn't happen. And usually now we're doing it on a bill that was supported by like over like almost half the Republican caucus in the Senate. I mean, this is a really tough question because as a general rule in politics and life, doing the opposite of Mitch McConnell is smart. Like, don't be Mitch McConnell is like a really good thing. But in this mm-hmm. case, I don't really know yeah. how to think about it. I mean, is I guess one, one way to think about it is I'm trying to figure this out uh, live here on air is that. Everything is good politics for Republicans until Democrats make it bad politics for them, right? Like they, you understand, you understand from their point of view that the the Republican base, which is to be clear these days, to the right of Donald Trump, right? As we saw from when they booed him for suggesting that people maybe get a vaccine uh, in Alabama a few months ago, they keep they feel that the Republicans are more likely to punish them. At the polls, the Republican base is more likely to punish them at the polls, the Democrats. And there is some they are correct in the sense that because of gerrymandering and just geographic polarization, most of these people's biggest fear is a primary, not a general election. But it's also a very well-worn sense that Democrats will be unable to muster enough sort of messaging firepower and narrative cohesion to make them pay for this over the long term. Well, that brings up my next question, which is how should Democrats talk to voters about what Republicans did here? I mean, there is a there are sort of two parts of this. The first part is like the short term. How do you deal with this very specific thing? And then there's this much longer term question, which we're going to talk about maybe a little bit later in this pod and in the many months to come of like, what is the right contrast message for Republicans and what how much of that yeah. is part of our message, right? Versus what we've done or what we want to do and all of that. And there's we have, there's a lot to learn from the voters that are going to be there in 2022 and the voter people who just voted last week to know like what that is. But I think the way to think about this in the short term is we know from the polling that seven in 10 Americans think the economy is going in the wrong direction. Majorities of them are concerned about the economy, inflation in particular. And you have the Republicans who not only voted against a bill to create jobs and help Americans deal with high costs, but are punishing those people who do, who did do, who did support them. Right. And I think that like we have to put what happened in the context of where the voters are and how they feel about the economy. And this is both how we frame what Biden and the Democrats are doing and what the Republicans are stopping us from doing is that these are measures that are going to address the thing the voters are most concerned about and Republicans are standing where they're an obstacle to progress on the stuff you're worried about. Yeah. And I think you have to figure out motivation, right? Why are Republicans, this is, this is part of any sort of message about the opposition. 
why are Republicans doing what they're doing? What are they motivated by? And what is believable to people about the Republican Party? Which, even though they won in Virginia and came close to New Jersey and won in a bunch of other places on Tuesdays, is still a very unpopular party, right? Like the Republican Party hasn't suddenly become very popular in the polls just because Joe Biden and the Democrats have become more unpopular. They are an unpopular party. So why are they an unpopular party? I think one of the reasons they're an unpopular party is because people think that Republican politicians are in it for themselves, that their only motivation is to beat Democrats. They'd rather beat Democrats than give their own voters jobs and clean water and new roads and new bridges. They care way more about their jobs than your job is is one potential message. <laughs> you know, like they they denying Joe Biden a win is so important to them that they'd rather deny you all the benefits of this infrastructure bill, jobs, roads, clean water. That's how much they care about winning. That's how much they care about powder, power. And I do think that's like a believable message about the Republican Party because that's how they've acted for the last decade. I This will be fun. We can have a little disagreement here. I have some skepticism about that as the motivation. And this is actually why this is hard on the bipartisan infrastructure framework, which is supported by corporations and easier on the jobs and climate plan or the jobs and family plan or the social the social spending plan, as the New York Times would call it, is what is, I think, an easier, more believable message. I think voters, and we've seen this even in some stuff that we tested um, in 2011, 2012, when we were trying to reframe our economic message heading into the reelect, is are do they, do they only care about stopping Obama or do they want to help special interests? And there is some sense, I think, and people are even more cynical now than they were then, that you give politicians a discount for cynicism, right? Of course, they, that's what everyone wants to do. Democrats did the same thing to Trump, right? Is there is there something more nefarious that gets at, um, or maybe not more nefarious, but there's something that's more believable that makes them like the them less? And I I think, you know, and obviously we're just two people shooting the shit here and not holding reams of polling data in focus groups that we hope to have one day, but that the core, that the special interest message is going to be more effective than the partisanship message. Yeah. I just think it's, a, I think it's not as believable as you pointed out on this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. For sure. For sure. <laughs> it's just not, like, this is the problem with the special interest message, which again, polls through the roof all the time. We've seen all the polls Republicans help. The, the, the other thing people believe about the Republicans this is absolutely true is that they help the rich and the Democrats do not. And so I think as we're talking about sort of the broader message, Republicans helping themselves and their rich friends is probably the full message yep. there. Yeah, and yeah, for sure. we can point to their opposition to the to the tax uh, provisions in Build Back Better as example of that fucking salt notwithstanding, um, <laughs> which is one of the reasons that drives me nuts. Um, but I think, you know, Republicans have basically said Right. Like what is true about why they oppose this bipartisan infrastructure bill? What do we know that's true? Let's start there. We know that they oppose it because they didn't want Joe Biden and the Democrats to have a win. And they told us that. <laughs> so, like, you always start with a message about the opposition that's believable, that's true, that people know. And like they're all on record in a bunch of different places saying, why are we giving Joe Biden a win now? D Donald Trump said that. That was D Donald Trump's statement about the bill is, why are you giving Joe Biden a win when he's and his poll numbers are so bad right now? You should vote against it. Oh, you should vote against the bill that's going to deliver goods to Republican voters all across the country because you don't want Joe Biden to have a win. Like, it just seems like it's a more believable message to me on this issue. Um, speaking of Trump, <laughs> he released a statement. His full statement on this said, 
Why is it that old crow Mitch McConnell voted for a terrible Democrat socialist infrastructure plan and induced others in his party to do likewise when he was incapable of getting a great infrastructure plan wanting to be put forward by me and the Republican Party? It's got a real uh, got a real Sarah Palin vibe to that statement. Yeah, it's real uh, <laughs> elliptical rhetoric. And I'm not sure what what is going on there because even that doesn't even sound like Trump. It does, right. It sounds like Sarah Palin. Maybe that's what, like, I've been wondering what she's been up to. Maybe what she writes his tweets now or his posts on, what's the name of his social media platform? Uh, I don't remember. Clearly not good brand. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. Um, What do you think about Old Crow? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, points for creativity. Like, our side has just been doing the damn turtle thing for the last, like, 12 years, so... You know, I mean, does he look yeah, more it's like better a, than Moscow? It's better than Moscow Mitch, honestly, which I know is your the favorite. Dumbest, dumbest thing we've done in a long time. Um, I mean, obviously, it's not why he was reelected in Kentucky, but it, I, it, I find it like <laughs> nails on a chalkboard. And every time I bring that up, people, and I'm sure they're going to do it after this, yell at me about it. Um, but, you know, it's like, does he look more like a turtle than a crow? Probably. <laughs> these are the look these are the important things that we debate on this program this is going to be critical to the future of the democratic party and that's why oh you know what twitter it. poll isn't um, isn't that what the social team wants they want us to come up with things that we can twitter poll <laughs> <laughs> amelia is so happy right now <laughs> we are now this is going to be our twitter poll about mitch mcconnell so anyway so trump puts out that statement he's fucking wading into this of course um few things going on with him the 2024 gop frontrunner for president this week Uh, A federal judge has rejected Trump's attempt to hide White House documents from the select committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, saying, quote, presidents are not kings and the plaintiff is not president. The Independent Office of Special Counsel has determined that 13 senior Trump administration officials violated federal law by campaigning for the former president's reelection in 2020. And the New York Times reported that the district attorney in Atlanta is preparing to impanel a grand jury in her criminal investigation of election interference by Donald Trump and his goons, based in part on the former president's call to Georgia's secretary of state, where he famously asked him to, quote, find 11,780 votes to overturn the election. Now, if I were to read those sentences about any other frontrunner for president, Republican or Democrat, that person probably wouldn't be frontrunner for long. But here we are a week out from an election where one of the takes was don't talk so much about Trump. What do you think? What do we do here? What do we do with all this? Is any of this something? Is it nothing? What, what do we that, do? That's, that, that is a thing now, right? Is this something? Yes. Yes. Is this something? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's there's a potential criminal investigation of the GOP frontrunner in 2024. Is that something? <laughs> <laughs> or are we just gonna just like just like sit around and let that happen because we don't talk talk don't want to talk too much about Trump? I think. Uh, I mean, it's worth noting that Trump did win uh, despite multiple uh, looming criminal investigations and almost won re-election despite even more uh, criminal investigations. So they're not. Perhaps the political anvils they once used to be. Um, But I think this does. I'll try to take this to a constructive place. Just, I don't know, for fun, which is the, you know, this this does get your enthusiasm for constructiveness that this plate stayed in the pot is great. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, why not? not Um, Is the. Might as well give the people what they're paying for. That's right. The, um, The question of should we talk about. Trump or not talk about Trump is a really a dumb one, right? It, of course, we have to talk about Trump. He's the former president. If the election were held tomorrow, 
he's probably the favorite to be president again. I hate to say that. And he's the front runner to run for president in 2024. He is a represents a move political movement in this country as an existential threat to democracy. We have to talk about him. The question is, how? And I don't know the right answer to that question, but I do know the wrong answer. And the wrong answer is the way Terry McAuliffe did it, right? You can't treat voters like they're stupid, right? Glenn Youngkin was not Donald Trump. Did he share some of the dangerous beliefs of Donald Trump? Was he overly solicitous of Donald Trump and his supporters? Absolutely. But just you can't just yell Glenn Trumpkin and think that is a narrative that voters are going to buy. We have to find a way to talk about Trump and the threat that his political movement, which is the Republican Party of the state, represents without trying to make every candidate who is doing, like, who's trying very hard to separate themselves from Trump. Like, we can't just, it, there are going to be candidates who seem a lot like Trump, and there will be some who seem less like Trump. And we're going to have to have some nuance in the message, right? Does that make sense? No, I think that, I think that totally makes sense. Uh, like, it sounds like a simple, common sense thing to not treat voters like they're stupid, but we are democratic strategists and Republicans too, Republican strategists too, are often not very good at it. (laughs) You know, like, I mean, look, same thing. I think you could have made an argument about Glenn Youngkin that it's like, look, Glenn Youngkin, you know, doesn't have Trump campaigning for him and stuff like that. Glenn Youngkin could have uh, said, I don't want Trump's endorsement. He could have said, no, thank you. I'm different than Donald Trump. I want the Republican Party to go in a new direction. And so I'm resisting that endorsement. He chose not to do that, right? Like that's a real argument about Glenn Youngkin. Just saying, you know, uh, if if we elect Glenn Youngkin, Donald Trump's going to announce for president the next day. So don't don't uh, vote for Glenn Youngkin, which is what how Terry McAuliffe closed his last speech. <laughs> like that's not really that believable, you know? So I totally agree with that point. Um, and I do think we can get wrapped around the axle of sort of um, this is like more of a spectator sport watching these investigations into Donald Trump. Um, I think we all learned this with the Mueller investigation. We learned this through two impeachments like this stuff's going to happen, right? The Georgia investigation is going to happen. One, the one six committee stuff's going to happen. There's little influence that we can all have over the outcome of those investigations, right? They will either happen or they won't happen. I mean, I, I do think there's, you know, prodding the Democrats on the committee to make the best case against Trump possible in the 1-6 committee. I think that's important. But like the Georgia investigation, whatever's going on there, like just keep up with the news. Check it out. There's really nothing else we can do about that than just watch it unfold. And so it's not something that we should spend a ton of our time talking about and thinking about until we find out what happens. Like maybe there's something there. Maybe there's something not there. It's in the hands of the Georgia DA, a grand jury, and a courtroom, right? Like what we can't do anything about that. Um, One thing we can do something about is Trump is busy endorsing Republican candidates who are just a little more extreme than Glenn Youngkin. Uh, That's what he's been doing lately. Uh, Like Pennsylvania Senate candidate Sean Parnell, whose ex-wife just accused him in court of strangling her and beating their child. Or Georgia Senate candidate Herschel Walker, who's written about playing Russian roulette with a gun to his head and fantasizing about murdering someone who didn't deliver his car on time. Or Idaho gubernatorial candidate Janice McGeechan, who's close to a right-wing militia leader who pled guilty to aiming a weapon at federal officers during the 2014 standoff at Ammon Bundy's Nevada ranch. That person endorsed her. She spoke at a rally for his militia group, organized by the militia group. This is fucking nuts. Um, These are obviously not candidates in the mold of Glenn Youngkin, Dan. Um, Many Republican strategists aren't happy about them. How much does that matter? It could matter a lot. I mean, if you think back to 2010 when Democrats lost 63 
House seats. We held on to the Senate. Now, we lost a bunch of Senate seats, but we held on the Senate in large part because the, the Tea Party Republicans nominated a bunch of people who could not win in battleground states, right? You, There is Sharon Angle, who ran against uh, Harry Reid, who you mentioned. There is uh, Christine O'Donnell, who was who won the primary against uh, Mike Castle, who was a very popular former governor and congressman in the state of Delaware and would have walked into the Senate. Christine O'Donnell was a Tea Party candidate who was, I think it's fair to say, witchcraft adjacent. And she lost to Chris Coons, giving us the uh, Chris Coons, <laughs> uh, a man who ran primarily just simply as a political sacrifice to Mike Castle and has now been in the Senate for a decade because of it. Um, and so who they nominate matters. Same thing in 2012. We won. Democrats held on to Senate seats in Missouri and Indiana, despite Obama losing pretty badly in those states because Republicans nominated terrible candidates. So it can make a huge difference. And there's a reason Republicans are not named Trump or sort of freaking out about some of these candidates because they could cost them a great shot at Senate control. Beyond these individual races, do you think that it's worth trying to make these candidates the face of the Republican Party? I mean, that's, it's hard, right? Like, I, can you make the Senate Republican nominee in Pennsylvania, the face of the Republican Party, or even Herschel Walker, a very famous NFL player who's running for Senate in Georgia, the face of the, probably not. Can you have a narrative about Republicans being extreme and out of touch and out of the mainstream? Absolutely. And this is when you get to the, the larger Republican branding questions, like this is one path that a lot of people advocate, which is the way to sort of leverage the, to, pers- to keep people in our coalition and turn people out of presidential level is to talk, and this is not fear-mongering in any way, shape, or form, about just how dangerous this Republican Party is. And these candidates are proof points in that, as is Donald Trump. And so that could be – they I, like it's not that they are the face or we're going to make Marjorie Taylor Greene the face or anything like that. It is – I think they are proof points in a larger narrative about a party that is in the thralls of an extreme minority that's out of touch with American values and American mainstream thought, et cetera. And the and one data point on why this might be effective is Republican strategists are afraid of it, right? Like they are working, those Republican strategists are working behind the scenes to make sure that these kinds of candidates are not nominated. Like one of the reasons that Glenn Youngkin came out of that primary is that it wasn't really a primary, it was a convention. And Republican organizers and strategists worked really hard at that convention in Virginia to make sure that the Trumpier candidates didn't end up on the ballot facing Terry McAuliffe, that they could get the least Trumpy candidate possible on the ballot. And that's who they got. There were some real wackos in that primary (laughs) in Virginia. And Virginia has run some, the Virginia Republicans have run some real wackos in the past uh, statewide, and they've suffered because of it. And they got smart this year. And didn't have to have Glenn Youngkin face a primary electorate in Virginia that was probably very, very far to the right, but to come out of a convention. And they're not going to have that luxury in a lot of these other states. Uh, All right. When we come back, we will talk midterm strategy with The Washington Post's Perry Bacon. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. 
not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. All right. Since we last spoke about the big off-year elections in Virginia and New Jersey, there have been a few thousand more takes floating around the internet, but we now also have some good data and analysis about Democratic voters from Civis Analytics, Pew, Data for Progress, even Jacobin, that all points to how challenging it will be to grow or even maintain the broad, diverse coalition that elected Joe Biden in 2020. Here to help us sort through the wreckage and talk about what's next, Washington Post columnist Perry Bacon. Perry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to see you. So you uh, succinctly articulated in the post what I've been trying to say about last week's elections, which is that the results, quote, were fairly normal, and that's the scary thing. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that and give us sort of your overall take on what happened last Tuesday? Correct. So usually what happens after a party wins the presidency is that they they struggle in the off-year election. So 2017 and then 2018, or in this case, 2021, maybe 2022. And that happens for two reasons. One is often the party that won the presidency, their base is motivated, but not as motivated. So their voters sometimes stay home versus the other party's voters are usually extra mad. How dare the president of the other party do stuff? So they turn out in very high numbers. And then usually you have some amount of people who swing from the president's party, small number, but swing of the president's party to the other one. And so you so, so in some ways, this is kind of what normally happens is like the Virginia election usually goes to the party not in control of the presidency. The midterms usually go to the party not in control of the presidency. I was hoping that that dynamic would not happen, that the Republicans had gone so crazy that people would think differently about that. And the result where you guys live in California was Gavin Newsom won by about the same amount in killing the recall that he won in 2018 when Trump was president. That was a data point for me to think, oh, maybe things have changed. Maybe these sort of normal me too. rules me too. are not there. <laughs> and and so, I was, so I was hopeful and I thought maybe Terry sort of pulls this out. And But the results, you know, from last week look like what we usually see in a midterm, which is um, lower turnout, you know, different, you know, we're to be clear, turnout is lower in both parties. After, turnout is always lower in off years because we're at a presidential. What you saw in New Jersey and Virginia, though, was turnout was 
more depressed among Democrats than Republicans. And that differential turnout is important. And also you saw some evidence of vote switching. And I think that's important as well, where it looks like some small number, but a number that matters of people looks it appears voted for Biden, but also voted for Youngkin. So those things, and that goes to this really, it goes to a couple things, I think. First of all, despite the Democratic message, by, um, Youngkin is not Donald Trump. Youngkin is not a threat to democracy. It is not surprising some people do not think Youngkin is as bad as Trump. That's true. Uh, the other thing being, it's worth thinking that in a place like Virginia particularly, there are some people who likely are, I'll call them Romney, Clinton, Biden voters, people who were probably consider themselves conservative and maybe Republican even, but don't think but thought Trump was way over the line, but will probably be more likely to vote for sort of a normal Republican. So I think some of the swing away from Biden and the Democrats is was kind of natural once a person less crazy than Trump, which would cover most Republicans candidly, was not on the ballot anymore. Dan, one thing that uh, Perry just touched on, and, and we talked about last week, which is that, you know, Youngkin's win was due to a combination of of winning support from some Biden voters and turning out more Republicans. But the Civis Analytics uh, analysis and some others are starting to show just how much turnout mattered. Like they said that McAuliffe turned out 13 percent more voters than Ralph Northam did. But Youngkin won because he turned out 34 percent more voters than Ed Gillespie. So do you think we need a greater focus on why so many of those Biden voters didn't show up. I feel like a lot of the commentary has been focused on the the vote switching, which definitely happened and certainly matters in a very close election. But if the bulk of the difference was turnout, um, what would it look like to focus on that? Well, I've been thinking about this because the focus on the Yunkin Biden voters is very similar to the focus on the Obama Trump voters after 2016, where you spent 99% of our time talking about this small group of voters, consequential, but small, that switched back and forth, and not enough on the 4 million Barack Obama 2012 voters who did not vote in 2016. And so we always focus on the people who vote more than the people who don't vote, which is one of the great flaws in all political analysis. And so I've been thinking about what, what we did in the Obama campaign after 2010. And we did a huge study of Obama drop-off voters, people who voted for Obama in 2008 who did not vote in the midterm elections where we got shellacked, to use Obama's words, uh, and lost 63 seats to figure out what kept them from getting involved. And that's I'm, I'm positive this is happening uh, probably in many places within the Democratic Party is a really thorough qualitative focus group, quantitative polling analysis of who those voters are. But I think there's even one more piece of this, which is we – We need to stop treating these voters as two separate groups necessarily and recognize that in almost every single state that's going to determine control of the Senate next year, all we have to do is turn out people who voted for Joe Biden last year and we win. And so this is it is about persuading Biden voters, persuading them to stay with Democrats or persuading them to turn out for Democrats as opposed to going to find people who were wearing red hats six months ago to get them to support Democrats. And so we like it's sort of like breaking down the walls between persuasion and GOTV and thinking about as persuading Biden voters to stay involved in a post-Trump era. Yeah. And again, and I think that you just made the point, like it's it's much easier than what we were talking about after 2016, which is like, how do we win the Trump voters back? 
the question now is just how do we win Biden voters back, right? How do, how do you either get them to show up because they didn't or to vote for Democrats again when they voted for Republicans? So in some ways, it should be an easier lift, though we haven't quite figured it out just yet. Um, Perry, instead of getting into another debate about how much critical race theory mattered in Virginia, feels like there's plenty of those out there. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about the excellent piece you wrote today in The Washington Post, where you argue that the flip side of Republicans practicing white grievance politics is Democrats practicing white appeasement politics. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The idea is essentially that the we're in a country where I think the electorate's about 70 percent white, non-Hispanic white. It's a white majority country, obviously. And so often what Democratic candidates do is is uh, two things. When I what I called white appeasement, I try to use a negative term intentionally here. Is two things. One is they move to the right on racial issues or distance themselves from people of color. I think the best example we referred to in the story is about Sister Soldier and Jesse Jackson and how Bill Clinton distanced himself from uh, from those two people in 1992, kind of symbolically trying to say, uh, I am not sort of trapped by the black civil rights class and I can distance myself from that. So that's one thing. Democrats distance. The second thing they do is just don't go as far as maybe they could and might be morally right on like civil rights issues. You could talk about maybe police reform in this era, affirmative action in other eras, where Democrats probably hold one, one position, but they don't necessarily express that in the most, for, most forthright way as a way to avoid maybe a backlash among kind of white voters who are, I'm not talking about sort of like Trumpish voters or the deplorables that have you, I'm talking about more persuadable white voters who, and maybe and it's probably some Latinos at this point as well, who can vote for a Democrat, but maybe are not going to vote for a Democrat who leans really far on racial issues. How do you think that's playing out in today's context? Obviously, you know, in the piece you talk about all these historical examples, which, which obviously hold up, but um, how do you think that's happening today? Do you think it's primarily centered around both the critical race theory debate and the defund the police debate? So I don't think it does. So I'll be honest. So in some ways in writing a piece like this, I, I, I was working the piece before Virginia, but when I hear people make comments like Democrats are overcome by wokeness, it's like, I don't know that Terry McAuliffe, Joe Biden and Phil Murphy, the major <laughs> figures in last week's results, are woke in any sort of definition of that term. I mean, they're older white men, first of all. They're not running around saying they're for reparations. I don't think that they talk about critical race theory very often. So when I hear that kind of thing, it sounds to me like there's a criticism of other people in the party. And I and so my concern in writing a piece is there, I sense a desire for Joe Biden or some other prominent Democrat to find people who support critical race theory, so academics who are black, the squad, BLM, and do sort of criticize them to show, look, we're not that left the way those crazies are. And I think those kinds of things I'm a little worried about. And when I hear some of Abigail Spamberger's comments, both after last year's elections, remember last year she said defund the police killed all the swing you know, no candidate was for that. This year she said Biden's trying to be too much like FDR. I thought the whole point of Democratic presidents was to be like FDR. That comment was insane. <laughs> like, you know, so I, I just think that we're, this sort of wokeness is, is a muck can lead, like 
should the Democrats shrink the infrastructure bill or shrink one of the big bills? I don't know. But I think wokeness is wokeness is going too crazy can can lead toward sort of bad tactics, sister soldier like things of, you know, let's attack the squad, let's break from police reform. That's my concern. That's kind of what I wanted to write to sort of encourage real thinking about what actually helps you win versus what seems like might help you win, but is mean to people and actually might not help you win anyway. One thing you, um, I think you tweeted this the other day that has stuck with me is that there's been so much commentary about Eric Adams um, winning the primary uh, to be mayor of New York City when, you know, arguably the most impressive win from a black candidate over the last several years has been Raphael Warnock in Georgia. Um, won in a red state, did even better than John Ossoff in, in the same election. One thing about Warnock that's interesting is I feel like he ran an unapologetically progressive campaign, progressive on economic issues, um, progressive on issues of racial justice as well. Though I also remember Warnock standing up at one of those debates, talking about his opposition to defunding the police, making it very explicit and accusing Kelly Leffler of defunding the police with some of her votes in Congress. Like, how do you think about that? I think it might be worth defining our terms more. Like in some ways it's like, what does woke mean? If woke means defund the police, I agree. No Democrat in a swing state should say that. If woke means I care about racial equality, I care about voting rights, Raphael Warnock is certainly woke. And I think that's why I don't love that term because it often sort of obscures what we're really talking about. And so I think, but I think one thing, the in the past, Democrats have often interpreted when I say white appeasement means we have to have a white candidate run in any area where the race is going to be hard. I think Barack Obama showed that too, but that was like one example. But, but then maybe you could imagine you could say Raphael, you know, Barack Obama was this ex- extremely talented politician. That is true. But I think, and maybe Raphael Warnock is too, but I do think seeing the results in Georgia and how Warnock won should at least give people some pause. Like Georgia had this long record and most of the South had any Democrats in the South had any big race where Democrats really want to win. Let's find a white guy. And in this case, yeah. it was not, let's find a white guy. Let's, let's embrace this candidate who and Warnock and Stacey Abrams and Ossoff and, and, and the whole party really tried to build a strategy around let's, let's, turn out the base, let's turn out black people, let's turn out minorities, let's turn out the Atlanta area. Also, try to win some swing voters. So don't say defund, but Warnock was very strongly for voting rights and and things like that. So that's kind of what I mean is like woke isn't telling me much. Like what do we, what should candidates not say and what should they say? And that's kind of the, the discussion. The more detailed discussion is the better I think we are, better off we are. Yeah, I think defining these terms is so important. Uh, you know, woke falls victim to this, which is why I don't love using that word. Um, I even think around critical race theory, too. Like, there's a difference between a curriculum that teach our kids about slavery and about the dark parts of American history and, and, and racism and systemic racism. And, you know, some of these DEI trainings that happen with teachers where they're teaching, you know, Robin D'Angelo's book that could be a little out there, right? Like there's a difference between things, but we sort of conflate them all when we have this debate and it probably isn't that helpful. Dan, you know, obviously Democrats don't need a coalition that includes a bunch of two-time Trump voters, as we said, but we do need a coalition that includes Older black women who always vote, young Latino men that don't always vote, white Biden Youngkin voters, a lot of different demographic combinations. 
what kind have you been thinking about like what kind of messages appeal to all of those voters so that we're not sacrificing any of those groups since we can't i mean that I mean, you're exactly right that is the math right we can we have to do it's and both we have to have great turnout we have to hold on to voters who have moved in our direction in recent years and so two things about this the first is and i think the warnock example that you and perry discussed is very important is you cannot separate message from messenger and Warnock was a great messenger. Obama was a great messenger. Stacey Abrams, although she lost, was a great messenger. And the what it, it's always hard to be like, this is what the message should be. And what you should go adopt it, whether you're Raphael Warnock or Abigail Spamberger or, you know, whoever, you know, the Democrat running against Young Kim in California. And it's going to be depend on who you are. But broad, but more sort of specifically is in general, you want to focus your campaign on issues that unite your base and divide theirs. And the issue that does that or the issue area that does it is economics, right? Republicans already use the term that we talked about a few weeks ago that Ian Haney Lopez uses, which is conflicted voters, right? People who are culturally conservative and may be conservative in ways that we find very odious on racial issues, right? And or reacting to some generic uh, malicious definition of the term woke, but are populist and economic issues. So you want to move the campaign in that economic issue framework, because that does divide Republicans. You see that in all the polling of the Biden agenda is that there is a group of voters who voted for Trump that is disproportionately working class that support the things that Joe Biden is trying to do in Congress. And so focusing the conversation on those populist economic issues is one way in which we can begin the process of keeping that coalition together. I want to talk about that because, you know, the Jacobin YouGov study uh, I found interesting because it focused on 2000 working class voters of all races, which I think is important because, you know, even though we talk a lot about working class whites moving away from the Democratic Party, working class black and Latino voters, especially Latino voters, have started to move away from the party in recent elections as well. Not as much as working class whites, but some we've started to notice. And what they found is that potentially Democratic working class voters did not shy away from candidates based on their race, gender, progressive ideology or strong opposition to racism. But, quote, candidates who framed that opposition in identity-focused language fared significantly worse than candidates who embraced either populist or mainstream language. Perry, what did you think about those conclusions? I mean, I think my concern with, you know, this, and I I don't disagree with Dan, but I guess the question I might have is, like, it's not, yes, Democrats should run on whatever they're going to run on, and, and what he said makes sense, but Fox News, Facebook, so on, they're going to define Democrats by race identity in the most divisive ways possible. And so I think that's got to be like, okay, well, you know, even Warnock faced this to where Warnock did not run on his sermons or Warnock had said some more racially controversial things in his sermons. You know, Fox News, Kelly Lefton, they ran on those. So I think to some extent, it is definitely correct that the persuadable voters are not looking to hear the most racially aggressive critical race theory message. I think the question might be more precisely, I think in my view is at least is when the democratic candidate is like, has those things pushed on him, what does he or she need to say? I don't know that the best response to 
One candidate says critical race theory is terrible. The other candidate says nobody I know is learning about critical race theory. I think you might want to have, yeah. I just don't know how much does, I agree Terry should not run, a, McAuliffe should not run a campaign on critical race theory. Once the media is covering that issue, to me, one of the problems, I think this, one of the, I think the fallacies of this economic argument is not that it's not right, it's that the media covers the campaign. The media finds minimum wage increases kind of boring and discussions <laughs> about race kind of interesting. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm in the media. So no, I know it's this, true. you guys are too at this point. So I would say if I was McAuliffe, I think, yes, focus on economic issues too. But I think that what I always thought, and maybe you guys are the campaign experts and I'm not, but teach about America's racial history honestly seems to me to be a message that probably polls well and means you can be in the discussion without trying to obscure the discussion. Yeah, I totally agree that you're on stage in a debate, someone attacks you on critical race theory, you can't go back and be like, well, I'm for jobs. <laughs> like, ignore what he just said, because I'm for jobs, right? But I do think, I mean, look, I think one way to do it is they start attacking you on critical race theory and you'd say, look, this is, uh, this is an attack designed to divide us against each other. And really what we all want are schools where no matter what you look like, where you come from, who you are, what zip code that you come from, every single child has a world-class education, black, white, Latino, Asian, anyone. Like that's what we're trying to do. They're trying to divide us so that they can score points and win. We're trying to build a system where everyone succeeds from all races. And that way you're getting to an economic issue, but you're not ignoring race altogether, which seems like, as you said, very hard to do when obviously Republicans are going to inject that into every single campaign. Dan, what, what do you I mean, think? Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. That's actually my concern or slight objection to the Jacobin study is politics doesn't happen in a vacuum. And all American politics is at its core about race, right? It's about who has power, what happens to that power. Every Republican economic argument is about scarcity and whether too much of what you have is going to black and brown people. That was That's what Welfare Queens was about. That's what Newt Gingrich calling Barack Obama the food stamp president was about. Basically, all of Trumpism was about that. And so you can't ignore that, right? And that's this idea that if we're just going to – we're going to talk about populist economics and ignore race. That that is an even if the media environment was happening on the level, which it is not, that that would not work. Did not work in two thousand and eight. Will not will never work. The question is is how do you navigate that? Like there is a roadmap to this. We've talked about it a thousand times this podcast. It's the race class narrative, right? It is acknowledging that why people are trying to divide you on racial lines um, is that's the pivot point, right? That, that who benefits from that racial division, right? It's not just racism. That is a big part of it, but it's also who wins, special interest corporations, et cetera, who hold the power in this country. And the other element of it is we have this world where there's like policy politics and identity politics. And policy politics is somehow pure and noble. And if we just did it, there would we would all come together, Trump voters, Bernie Sanders voters, suburbanite resistance wine moms, we'd all come together and it would, and we would reflect the inherent goodness of American politics. And that and that's just not the way it works, right? And all politics, we said this before, all politics, identity politics. And so if you're going to make an economic argument, it has to be one based on identity, on who you are fighting for. That was what Obama did. That's why he succeeded. That is really what Bernie Sanders did in a lot of ways. And you know, could have worked for him is what Trump is doing in the most malicious, odious version of that. 
And so this, like, if we just go out and say, these are our policies, we'll give you $15 minimum wage, Republicans won't, that's not going to work because that's that's not how people think about politics. There was this focus group that was done, the results of which were live tweeted out, which at, these were Biden, Youngkin voters, and they asked them who they agreed with on policy. And it was like overwhelming that these voters agree with Democrats on policy and overwhelmingly they agreed with Republicans on cultural and values issues. And we have to find a way to merge those two if we're going to have success. We have to have a, a moral power to our economic policy arguments or we will lose again because we've been winning the policy war in terms of public opinion for a very long time. We're just we're just not getting the commensurate political gains to come with that victory. Let me ask, I mean, you guys are the, let me ask a question that's really here. I mean, sure. I don't remember in 08 and 2012 that every time a a racial issue came up, Obama was like, they're trying to distract it. Like, I felt like during the primary, I know it's, that's the Democratic only vote, but during the primary, Barack Obama is this crazy pastor who says crazy things. The response was not, let's talk about economics. The response was Let's give a speech that puts this, that discusses race openly, but in a way that puts it in our favor. I know in 2012, there was a lot of focus on Romney being a plutocrat, but that was, there was a, I'm trying trying to remember what, there was a, there were some racial incidents during the 2012 general election too. And Obama, I thought was great at speaking to those moments in a way that was unifying. He didn't always sort of is, I know that pivoting away and not focusing on race is smart, but I don't know that's always possible. And I guess, you know, as a black person, I was proud of some of those moments where he sort of leaned into the issue and sort of spoke in a way that sort of didn't duck it and tried to say, I think there's a majority of Americans that agree with the, let's call it the black position. Is that, I I don't mind the race class narrative. I worry that 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 sort of gets away from addressing the fundamental issues, because I think the majority of Americans might agree with some of the things I think about racial issues. Well, I like I don't think you should pivot away. Like, I don't maybe the use of pivot is the wrong verb there. And yeah, maybe you didn't say that. Yeah, I, 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 I almost certainly said. did. So I will yes. I will address it, no, which no, no, no. is yeah. uh, it. The the I think the what was always core in Obama's argument and he was navigating an incredibly challenging political environment. And it's it's hard, given his political success, it's hard to put ourselves back in the 2007, 2008 mentality of how the hell is this country going to elect a black man named Barack Hussein Obama president, right? The fact that he won by so much now makes so much sense. But in the moment, the, you know, people were, all the polls had to be wrong because of the Bradley effect. And there's was, there was a whole right, different right. political context there that in how his candidacy was viewed in the moment that it is in hindsight. But I think the way Obama viewed it, and he had, you know, he obviously, as you wrote in your piece, had to be very careful about this. Um, and, you know, when you talk in your piece about the part where he says, I'm not the president of black America, which is also a, it's one of those things that seems very notable. It's also 100% true as if, Every sure. previous president said, I'm not the president of male America, right? Or, or <laughs> right, Christian right, America right. or whatever that is. <clears throat> yeah. And but it, it's not like I do think we have the tendency to be like there's a whole bunch of race in politics, right? There's a whole bunch of racial issues that are over here. And then there's a whole bunch of other issues over here when all the issues have a racial component and you have to think about them and talk about them in that way. And if you try to ignore the obvious, particularly when the other side is being even more blatant about 
their racial grievance appeals now than they are then, then you have to you have to take it on. There is no other way, right? Pivot was probably the wrong word. Is you have to take you have to take it on and put it in the larger context of American politics and why people are trying to do it. To go to the motivations of the people making it. I think I don't know if John you have other things to say about that. Yeah, I will just say from like working with him on the Jeremiah Wright speech in 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 two thousand and eight seven. I can't remember. It's 2008. It was 2008. Yeah, it's 2008. Yeah, yeah. So he, I went back and read it because I, yeah. Yeah, so all, all of the themes that we've been talking about are in that speech. And, you know, he, he wanted to address race specifically. We should say for some time, his advisors did not want him to give a big speech on race in the middle of the Iowa caucuses. He had wanted to give that speech. Um, finally, when the Reverend Wright uh, incident happened, he said, well, we're giving that speech. It's not an option anymore. I want to do this. And... I mean, one of the things I, when you wrote in your piece, sort of he separated himself from from right a little bit. That wasn't just a political choice. What genuinely offended him or what he disagreed with fundamentally about Reverend Wright's sermons is that it it basically Reverend Wright spoke like racial progress wasn't possible or didn't happen in this country over years. And what Obama wanted to say is he understood Reverend Wright, how upset Reverend Wright was that there hasn't been enough racial progress and that there's been far too much racial subjugation over the course of the America, a couple of centuries in America. But progress actually is possible. And when we deny that and we deny our own agency to make that progress, we do a disservice to ourselves. And so he wanted to make that point. But then at the end of that speech, at the back end of that speech, he does start talking about how these divisions have been used to also sort of deny opportunity, not just to black Americans, but to black Americans, white Americans, Latino Americans, all Americans who could come together in a coalition, a more working class coalition to sort of make everyone's lives better. And so he starts talking about the things that bother white working class people and black working class people. But you're right. He didn't just say like all these all, all these attacks about Reverend Wright are just a distraction from me trying to pass health care and create jobs like that was not going to be enough for speech like the only way around this issue was through it, which he understood, especially if he was, I mean, I remember he called me after that speech and he said, I don't know if I can get elected president saying the things I said today about race, but I also know that um, I don't deserve to be president if I, if I was too afraid to say those things. So if it works, it works. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, you know? And, and he goes, and that's, that's the price that I'm going to pay for trying to be the first black president of the United States. Um, so last question, Perry, you know, I think the Biden people, as they're looking ahead to 22, you know, they think that like the the larger mood music in the country, um, economic inflation, the pandemic still going like this is these are sort of the big obstacles to winning. And they have these historic trends that they're trying to fight against. Like, do you think their view, which is we pass the infrastructure bill, we pass the economic plan to voters feel tangible effects in their lives and that maybe we can buck these trends when everything gets better. How do you feel about that? You think that's possible or do you think that's uh, they need sort of another argument there? You know, I've been thinking about this a little bit. I, I mean, the short answer is it's not likely to work because of just the nature of uh, of midterms and the other side often has more enthusiasm. But if you look at some of these polls, it's not just that Biden's approval rating is lower because uh, because the opposition, it looks like he's down among people who voted for him. Like if you think about where we are now, 
you know, a, a, you know, a few months ago, he's at 54, 43. Now he's at about 43, 52. So basically 10% of people have went from liking him or proving to disapproving. disapproving. So in other words, 90% of us are all where we were. So that 10%, I'm guessing is not people who candidly read the Washington Post political columns or listen to our podcast. Yeah. I think that's probably a more disengaged group who's going to generally get the sense uh, Biden was less crazy than Trump and I liked him and the vaccines were working. And now yeah, the news says he's kind of blah and I don't know what's going on. So in some ways, I think, you know, and I was skeptical about this earlier, but because I know Ron Klain is very much on the we should be competent and that's how we get things done. And look, I think that can leave aside some like they should work on this voting rights stuff and they should work on this gerrymandering stuff. And I think this is, and I'm going to always say this year, they sort of underdid that stuff and it may be hard to win the midterms if the lines are drawn a certain way, even if you did everything right. But just looking at how his polling decline has went, I don't know that every voter who doesn't like him is like an inflation expert. I sort of (laughs) think that if things get going again, if, if Spamberger and uh, and the and Jayapal are not in the news every day saying how much nothing is getting done, if, if they just get some momentum, if they have two or three bills passed, do some executive orders, like those first few months, it seemed like every day Biden was doing stuff. Yeah. And I think that, and I'm actually now I think of it as I meant to write about this a few years ago, but I thought that period in 2015 and 2016, Obama's poll ratings went up a lot in 2015. And that was in part because the campaign is happening and therefore people are checked out. But in part because he sort of went from a, I'm trying to work on the Hill and I'm trying to, to like, I'm doing stuff, you know, I'm going to you know go and try to get the mayors to do something. I'm going to talk about gay marriage decisions. I'm going to just I think that the more it looks like Biden is winning and I and you can define that in however you want it to. But um, the looks the more it looks like he's active and he's making things better and he's not sort of a prisoner to events, but shaping events. Yes, the better off yes. he is. And so I think that's entirely I think to get back to 48, I think is possible. And I, but I think that involves him sort of being, I mean, you get, I'll be curious what Dan thinks. You guys are the experts, but I sort of feel like he's the feeling that he's sort of watching as opposed to presidenting is useful. And I think if he gets to presidenting, that'll help. Dan. Well, I think I agree. Like, yes, that is all true. I think 85% of his problem right now are conditions on the ground, right? It is inflation, it's pandemic weariness, it's high gas prices, probably more than anything else. Like you can just, you can basically plot president that rises in gas prices and drops in presidential approval next to each other over the last 30 years of politics. And if those things don't get better, it doesn't matter anything else. We're going to be really up shit's creek heading into the midterms. Yes, I think that there is, he's in this really tough position. It's the same one Obama was in at exactly this point in his presidency, which he got elected president to get things done. But to get things done, you have to be prime minister for a while. Americans elect presidents, they punish prime ministers. And so he has to get to the, he has to get this bill done. He has to get to the other side of the bill and he will have a chance to improve his standing by seeming more in charge, right? Congress gets the voters do not like Congress. The more time you spend with Congress, less popular become. Like there's a whole bunch of atmospheric things you need to fix. Like this is not to say they've done everything perfectly message wise or he could not see more active. I like, of course he can. But the big problems are sort of out of his control right now or they're either completely out of his control or they're mostly in Joe Manchin's control. And if those can get better in the short term and the calendar turns over next year, he has a chance to reset the narrative. Things get better on the ground. 
you know, more and more kids get vaccinated and you get sort of our virtuous news cycle. So people who are just opening up Facebook or whatever else don't just see story after story after story about Joe Biden not doing well, right? Or failing or disappointing these people or divided Democrats. You start to see other stuff and that will help him. No, I think I think that's exactly right. And I definitely agree with Perry that it is about controlling events and not being controlled by events. I think that's the the salient point for um, what a president needs to do, uh, or at least appear to be doing, uh, in order to uh, win over voters' confidence. Perry Bacon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, uh Hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew. Grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com slash high. I'm Oren Siegel, and I've been fighting extremism, anti-Semitism, and hate for more than 20 years. You should subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, to get a unique perspective on the daily work and the people who have dedicated their lives to exposing, fighting, and disrupting extremism, anti-Semitism, and all forms of hate. We bring you the stories of people and communities not only impacted by hate, but who offer new perspectives and ways to push back. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, let's get to the mailbag. We have just a few quick questions before we go. The first one comes from Max. Dan, we always talk about the biggest divide in politics being between people who do follow politics closely and those who don't. Democratic campaigns, progressives seem focused on the small group that follows it closely. But how can we start to cater campaigns to the majority who don't pay close attention? This is There is no easy answer to this question. Um, it is a huge challenge. And so I, I don't want to try to I want to, I don't, I would like, I don't want to do it injustice by sort of making some stuff up. Cause I would just say one specific problem we have that we could begin to address, which is right now we have a campaign fundraising model that is based on virality, right? It's like, what can we do that's going to get as much attention as possible from the most activist of Democrats and separate sort of separating that out where we have a fundraising model that is still grassroots, still online but sort of tries to build out a culture of sustainable giving where people are giving, you know, every, you know, $10 a month instead of $100 cuz they're really angry about something or they find something very viral or emotionally evocative and sort of decoupling that this was one of the biggest problems that a lot of primary campaigns had was that they were they were reverse engineering their messaging from what would raise money which keeps the lights on and so trying to find a way to decouple that i think would help us be able to have a more broad based appealing message very good answer. Uh, Eric Eric on Instagram asks, on a scale from Parks and Rec to Handmaid's Tale, how fucked are we? <laughs> and uh, Yvette on Instagram asked a similar question. I'm burnt out from 20 and feel disappointed in Congress. How do we find motivation? How do we find motivation for 22? Dan, I know you were trying to figure out uh, a television show that was somewhere on the scale from Parks and Rec to Handmaid's 
Did you, did you find that at all? Or are you still thinking about that? I mean, is it invasion? I've never seen invasion. I see the preview for it every time I turn on Apple TV, but it seems <laughs> like it's just this size. It's, it's like what happens right before Handmaid's Tale. I don't, I don't know. I kind of feel like succession. I guess it's succession. succession. I was going to say Veep again too. Like Veep ends like politics usually ends, <laughs> which is just everybody <laughs> fucking up. And now we're moving on. All right. On the, on the burnout question, because I've been hearing this a lot from people. I think that authoritarians, authoritarianism wins by dividing their enemies and wearing people down. So if you get people fighting who should be allies, if you make people feel like the system is so rigged that there's nothing you can do to change it, then people will eventually give up and that you win. Democracy is different than that. Democracy is not secured with each election. It's secured over a lifetime. I know we've like said this a lot of times before, but there is no president and no Congress that will allow us to just sit back and say, we're done. We can go back to our lives. That's just, that's not what democracy is about. That's never what democracy is about. And I, I think that if we, if we always believe that we are one election away from salvation, we will always be disappointed because like every single election requires us to be engaged all the time throughout our life. That's what democracy is. That's how it's always been. And like, look, we are, we are the bosses of the people that we send to Washington but being the boss of the people that we send to Washington means that we have to manage them constantly. And like, that means pushing them. That means firing them if necessary. That means replacing them if necessary. And part of being in a democracy is if we want to fire them and hire new ones, like we also have to persuade the a majority of the other 300 million plus people in this country to do the same thing. And that's hard. And like, yes, the system is stacked against us. Because of institutional racism and sexism and Facebook and Fox and gerrymandering and the Senate and all this kind of shit. It's all unfair, but that's the system that we're living in. And the options are to give up or to keep fighting. And I always think that there's just there's too many people out there whose lives literally depend on it for us to give up. So that's why we keep fighting. And there's a lot of disappointment in those fights and there's a lot of setbacks, but you just got to keep doing it because that is the price of living in a democracy. That's a great answer. That's all I got. You have a way with words. That's all I got. Uh, Amanda wants to know, what are you reading? I just finished last night Harlem Shuffle by Colson Whitehead, who's one of my favorite authors. Cool. And it just is because I always like to pair one thing I'm reading and one thing I'm reading over and over and over again to the kids is Kyla's favorite thing is favorite set of books is The Princess in Black, which is about a princess who is also a superhero who protects her land from well-meaning but misguided monsters. Uh, and they're great, great kids' books, and we have read all of them, and we are anxiously awaiting the newest one to come out. She doesn't really understand that you can't get new books. New books don't come out till February. This book doesn't come out till February, so we have to wait. And that is a long wait for a three-year-old. I'm so excited to get to the point where I can read, like, real children's books to Charlie since he's only 15 months old and everything's just like, here's Elmo. <laughs> the big Here's the big blue truck. Here's another version of the big blue truck. Here's a third version of the big blue truck. <laughs> Or Little Blue Truck. I think little, it's a Little, little blue, blue Truck. truck. How should I, I say that every fucking night. How did I forget the name of it? Little Blue yes. Truck's Halloween. Little we, Blue we Truck have, goes here. We have the full. Yeah. Little Blue Truck goes Valentine's to the city. Day. Yeah. The little Blue Truck Valentine's Day is a real winner. Yes. <laughs> little Blue Truck Close to the City is a classic. That is a classic. Yes. Um, so basically, I'm just reading about the Little Blue Truck. Uh, I also started Beautiful World, Where Are You by Sally Rooney, uh, just to 
in my constant effort to try to read real books, which I always come up short on. Uh, any pod, uh, Julie wants to know if there's any podcasts outside Crooked that you listen to. Obviously, the answer is no, but let's just entertain Julie's notion. Oh, and she also says, she says, not, she goes, not you, Tommy Vitor, laughing emoji. <laughs> because we know that Tommy's favorite podcast. Yeah, you podcast. mean Tommy who... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we well, we also know that we also know that no one consumes more media than Tommy. It's so impressive. Who's often no one like, consumes? Did you guys hear the daily? And I'm like, it's five forty five. Like, what do you? How have you listened to Mike Barbaro at five forty five? Tommy listens to more podcasts than literally anyone I know. I don't like. I, I, does he just walk around? I got to ask Hannah if he just walks around the house with with AirPods and just listening to <laughs> listening to pods <laughs> all day <laughs> because he had listened. He consumes so a lot. He consumes a lot. Anyway, what are you listening to? The only non-crooked podcast that I would allow myself to listen to, because I would never be disloyal to the to the the media empire, but is uh, it's basketball season. There is no better basketball podcast, specifically for Sixers fan, but no better basketball podcast. Period. Than the rights to Ricky Sanchez, which is a I mentioned this I think every basketball season we have this conversation, but it is absolute must listen to my favorite podcast. Cool. Uh, I'm listening to Smartless. I love Smartless with Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and Sean Hayes. Um, hot take. We had Amy Westervelt on. It's a climate pod. Uh, Amy is one of the hosts, and Mary uh, Anais Hagler is, is her co-host. They talk about climate politics. It's, it's like a PSA for climate politics. Um, and, of course, Strict Scrutiny with our friend Melissa Murray, who's been on the pod a lot, Kate Shaw, and uh, Leah Littman. Uh, excellent podcast about climate. Uh, the Supreme Court and all things legal. So those have been some podcasts that I've been listening to. Uh, thanks again to Perry Bacon for joining us today. Everyone have a fantastic weekend and we'll talk to you next week. Bye everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producer is Haley Muse, and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Madison Holman, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montu. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com.